Welcome, Annalie. Thanks for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And so you're a science journalist, and you've written short stories and novels and nonfiction books and all kinds of things across the spectrum. And this is something that I tend to ask every author that I get on this show because I'm genuinely curious. So does your thought process change based on the type of writing you're doing? It definitely does. And now that I've been doing fiction for so many years— I've really started to notice like how much I have to shift gears when I go into either fiction or nonfiction. And there's an adjustment process because I'm working on a nonfiction book right now. And it definitely took me about a month before my brain stopped saying, but wait, we could put a character in here and they could be doing a bunch of fictional stuff. And it's like, no, (laughs) (laughs) this is actually (laughs) fact-based. We cannot make things up. This is science writing. (laughs) So there is definitely like, there's always a voice that I have to kind of shut down that wants to get too crazy uh, in the nonfiction. But then when I'm doing fiction, you know, I have this voice in my head that says, I need to fact check everything. And so that's why there's so many weird historical details that are bizarrely accurate in my work, because I'm just, I can't turn off the research side. Yeah, there really are. And so do you write fiction and nonfiction at the same time? Or do you take like one and the other separately? Um, I'm always working on one nonfiction project and one fiction project, but I've found through hard experience that I kind of have to focus on writing one and then switch to the other. And that might mean like in a week, I might write an article that's a nonfiction article and then write a short story, but I can't be like in the morning, I'll write fiction. And in the afternoon, I'll write nonfiction um, because I really do think I have to give my brain a little time to adjust. I can certainly do things like research in the morning and then write fiction in the afternoon, but I definitely like to, I'm sort of getting pleasure out of compartmentalizing more. And I think that that's actually um, working well for my brain at the present moment. I could change, you know, (laughs) at any time, but, but for now it seems good. Yeah. And so let's talk about the future of another timeline, which is your new book coming out September 24th. And I'm really excited because this book was very, very good. I I very much enjoyed it. And you're welcome. And so it's definitely a feminist time travel story. And I was super interested to see that you made Anthony Comstock like a villain in it. Um, Like you said, you have all these really historically accurate things in there. Um, So how did that come about? Like, why, like, is there a reason that you chose Anthony Comstock specifically? There were a bunch of reasons. And it started because I knew that I wanted one of my main characters, Tess, who's a time traveler, to be working on a project to make abortion legal because she lives in a timeline. There's just one timeline and it's been meddled with forever by time travelers. And she lives in a timeline where abortion is not legal in the United States. And this is just something that she's personally really passionate about and also politically really matters to her. So I was trying to figure out where would you go if you were a time traveler, like where would be the divergence? Like what what would be the thing that would have caused the United States to not legalize abortion in the early 1970s. And, um, and I, one of the principles of the book is that you always have to go back a little farther than you think. 
And Anthony Comstock is the guy who, in the mid-19th century, created a series of laws that are now called the Comstock Laws that still, a few of them still exist on the books. And in those laws, he was interested in obscenity, and he helped define for Congress, he was an activist who went to Congress, and a lot of his activist ideas worked their way into laws, um, he defined information about abortion and birth control as obscene, along with uh, the more traditional obscene things like erotica and pornography. And so that, for him and for his activist followers in the YMCA, uh, which he was very involved with, and the YMCA used to be, um, in the 19th century, a litigation organization. They were activists who were promoting morality uh, and promoting the subjugation of women. And they pushed this idea that it is as obscene to teach women birth control as it is to pass around French postcards. And they, they became alighted in the public mind. And those laws were in place in many parts of the United States until the 1970s. And that, those are the same kinds of laws that uh, even today prevent people from like sending sex toys in the mail. Uh, there's still some states where you can't do that. Um, and Anthony Comstock is famous for, um, in the 19th century, ordering a bunch of dildos through the mail, because this is early in the time period when people were mass producing rubber objects and dildos were among the first objects to be turned into rubber consumer items um, in North America. And he wanted to prove that there was this incredible menace coming through the U.S. mails. So he ordered all of these mail order catalogs about birth control and abortion and dildos showed up at Congress with a steamer trunk full of dildos that allegedly he dumped out uh, in front of a bunch of um, Congress people at, during a hearing and was like, this is the menace that is confronting the youth today. Um, and he wrote very passionately about this. And um, one of the things that he loved to do was brag about the fact that he had driven a bunch of women to suicide by hounding um, midwives and hounding abortionists who were largely midwives uh, to the point where they, they considered suicide a better option than going to prison because he'd helped make their work illegal. So he seemed to me, for all of these reasons, because he was so important in American history, and even though he's been forgotten, his laws were not, um, and also because his rhetoric around kind of gleefully declaring himself a guy who drove women to suicide, he just felt very modern to me. He felt like somebody who could be on the Internet right now um, talking about um, men's rights. And it was really stunning to me. I went and I, I read a lot of his writing. It was stunning how similar it sounds to a lot of the kind of neoconservative, um, neo-reactionary rhetoric. And so I thought, well, if I, were, if I were a time traveler, like maybe that would be the divergence point. Maybe Anthony Comstock's success or failure um, and the success and failure of his, his activist um, cohort uh, really does change history. Um, and in fact, it did, because like I said, his laws were responsible for holding women's uh, reproductive rights back for almost 100 years. So, um, so he's just a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's also this really historically important jerk. And so um, my uh, kind of bad guy characters are men's rights activists from the future and the, um, who have kind of uh, rallied around Comstock, and, and they're called Comstockers, and they're they're kind of in an edit war with the feminists who are trying to make sure that their influence is not um, as profound as it, as it was. 
Yeah, and I didn't know. I mean, I knew who Anthony Comstock was, and I knew the dildo story, and that was about the extent of what I knew. <laughs> so after reading after reading your book, I was like, I'm gonna look this guy up and see what else he did. And it was it was this just like history. Your book was like this history lesson, and then it made me go look him up more. And then I just got more angry because <laughs> I was like, Oh, I'm so glad this guy has just like gone off into oblivion <laughs> like that he's like not I mean his influence is clearly still around and that's what was so interesting to me too is like you said he seems so modern like everything that he said it's like man like this could he could just he could totally be here today and you know he it's the same exact rhetoric today as it was in the 1800s which is nuts to me yeah and I think that's one of the things that's so interesting about um kind of turning to history in my writing because I've written about the future a lot. And you realize not that history is cyclical and that the same thing, things happen over and over again, because I don't really believe that, but you see the same kinds of conflicts erupting in different ways. And they're recognizable, they're different, but you know, it, it is really fun to explore how things that we think have just been totally resolved and left in the past actually just erupt again and look so similar, although they wear a different face. And so that was what was so fun is like going to, going back to the 19th century and not just finding Anthony Comstock, but finding all of these feminists and sex positive activists there who would, who were fighting him in our timeline in real life, but also in the book. And so, there's always that hopeful moment of looking back into history and saying like, you know, yeah, there were jerks, but there were also people fighting the jerks. And even when they won, like there was a huge resistance and that resistance also persisted into the present. Absolutely. And that was my other question, because you do have all of these like other sort of historical people in the book as well. So I wanted to know if you found the people first um, or if you had the story first and then found the people to put into it? That's a really good question. It kind of varies because I've hated Anthony Comstock for a really long time. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I've been thinking about him and I'm not the only one. I mean, um, you know, there's there's definitely he's been a bad guy in uh, Marge Piercy's work uh, and he's a bad guy in a video game I recently learned. So he's around. But um, as I was writing, I was um, researching feminists in the 19th century. And so I came across the work of Ida Craddock, uh, who is one of the women that Anthony Comstock did drive to suicide. And she was a spiritualist in Chicago and uh, a, an activist for women's reproductive health, for the idea of just women having sexual pleasure. She wrote a lot of pamphlets where she just taught women about the clitoris and stuff like that. And, um, and eventually Anthony Comstock arrested her for, you know, teaching women about birth control, basically. Uh, and so her, she isn't a character in the book, but there is a character who's kind of loosely based on her. And um, there were a lot of other characters who kind of came into focus as I researched more about Chicago, like Lucy Parsons, uh, who was who a um, anarchist who founded the IWW, which was a, an enormously important uh, leftist group, the labor group. And um, she's also been kind of forgotten historically, even though at the time she was, in the late 19th century, she was one of the most 
famous speakers on the lecture circuit. Um, and she was mixed race. She was partly African-American. And she always, um, you know, was kind of the only woman in a leadership position in a lot of different labor organizations and was a real hero. And she did, in fact, get into a bunch of fights um, with, with other socialists at the time that I, I talk about in the book. Um, and so uh, it was really fun, again, like just sort of, she shows up in the book and kind of delivers this amazing speech and part of which was taken from actual speeches that she gave. And so, and some of it I just made up because we don't have a lot of her speeches. And so, uh, yeah, it was, so it was a little bit of research and a little bit of kind of already having this this burning desire to talk about the politics in the late 19th century. Yeah, she was another person that I looked up because I was like, is this, was this person real? <laughs> I yeah, had never heard of her. Real. And I was like, she was totally real. This is amazing. Um, but you're right. Yeah. There's not a whole lot I could even find about her. Um, and so I was like, this there's is really, really sad. Great, yeah, there's a really great biography of Lucy Parsons uh, that came out a few years ago that I would highly recommend, and I, I cite it in the in the notes at the end of the book. Yeah, um, and that that's really great. And I think that um, you know also a lot of the belly dancers that I talk about at the World's Fair, um, you know, they're also people who have kind of we barely know anything about them, but you know there are some historical documents, and so I kind of invented. Um, invented a lot of characters there. Yeah, and let's talk about your two main characters who are also really interesting. One of them is like a riot girl teen punk in the 90s that I really very much identified with, even though I did not live <laughs> in California. I'm sure many people reading this, if you were that person in the 90s, <laughs> would very much identify with her. And then you have the uh, an adult woman who travels throughout time fighting the men's rights activists, as you said before. So where did these main characters come from? So the character of Beth, who is the riot girl uh, in the 1990s, is very much from my own experiences growing up. And she lives in Irvine, California, which is where I grew up. And she does a lot of the things that my friends and I did <laughs> there. <laughs> And um, the sections in Irvine are extremely meticulously recreated. So I have talked to a couple of people who also grew up in Irvine who were kind of freaked out by <laughs> how accurate it was. <laughs> um, so all of the places are real um, and were there. And, um, and actually a lot of the, the personal stuff that, she, that Beth is dealing with, she's dealing with a really abusive father and um, I, I had a very abusive father who um, kind of, he, it's, it's not an exact copy. I mean, it's fiction. Uh, but I took a lot of those um, scenes. And he's, he's not, he's an abuser who's, who's a gaslighter. Like, that's what he really thrives on is kind of manipulating people. And so a lot of the sections about Beth are about kind of just how men try to make women feel crazy um, and try to control them. Um, and that kind of fits in nicely with what's happening to Tess as a time traveler because she's trying to rescue histories that men pretend haven't happened. Um, and so a lot of the, the um, kind of crisscrossing of Tess and Beth's stories is 
you know, one is trying to kind of rebuild a personal history and one is about trying to rescue um, women's history more generally um, and trying to, you know, find out uh, what really happened to women in history. And so Tess is an academic, she's a geologist, and she's um, working with these time machines that no one really understands because they were discovered in rock, which is why geologists study them because they were found in this ancient shield rock. And she's, you know, she has a lot of the problems that academics have, you know, she's got to get funding, she's got to get access to the time machine, because there's only really one, there's like five time machines, and there's really only one that's local to her. And so she has to kind of jockey for time on this time machine. And, um, and she's trying to do real scientific work, but she's also got this kind of subversive agenda. Um, and so she and Beth, their paths keep crossing, and part of the fun of the book is figuring out what's their connection and why does Tess um, care so much about what's happening to Beth, um, and and also what does Beth think about Tess showing up in her life and saying stuff to her about what she should do, um, and so uh, so both of those characters come from you know a personal place because I was also an academic, <laughs> but they also just come from you know wherever the heck fiction ever comes from. You, know, right. like you kind of mash together all of your feelings and thoughts and things that you've researched. And, um, you know, you, I mean, I'm often surprised by what comes out, like what the characters do and how they respond is often um, a little bit mysterious. Definitely. And did you have like the idea of the book first or did the characters come first? Like, how did it all start in your head? started with this idea that I've actually had for a really long time, which was I wanted, I knew I, I always knew I wanted to write an alternate history about the United States where abortion was illegal, partly because when I was growing up, I always felt like knowing that I could get an abortion, I, I've never had an abortion, but knowing that I could have one, uh, I it felt very important to me in terms of my sense of like sexuality, basically, just feeling like I didn't have to ever be afraid that if I got pregnant, that that was a situation that was out of my control. Like I always knew I could make a choice. Um, and that, I think it was just so important to me as a teenager. It, it was important to me as an, it's been important to me as an adult. And so I wanted to imagine how I, and I always felt like if I hadn't had that right as a teenager, that I probably would have gone nuts and murdered people. <laughs> and so, <laughs> sorry, that's where it takes like a left hand turn. Right. <laughs> so like there's a serious side to it, but there's also, and, and this is what we see happening. This is not a spoiler, you know, best, best friend, um, Lizzie in the book uh, starts murdering guys who are rapists and creepers. Um, and she's doing it because she feels like it's a kind of riot girl liberation type of thing. And partly she feels that need, that desperation, because women's reproductive rights aren't being protected. And so to protect themselves, women kind of have to become Batman, you know, vigilantes who are, who are kind of slaying the bad guy. Um, and so that's kind of where it came from, was thinking about that question. And then that's how I got the character Beth, and then, um, and then I was like, oh, well, why is it an alternate timeline? Oh, obviously time travel. <laughs> so <laughs> that happened, and that was the hardest part, because time travel 
is the hardest thing to write and I will never do it again. Um, <laughs> you know, and it was, um, I'm glad I did it, but it's incredibly difficult. It's like the, I think it's the hardest kind of plot to do. And I know for sure there are plot holes in the book still as many of them as I plugged. And I believe me, there were so many plot holes that I plugged and then there's still like, People will read it and they'll be like, but what about this? And I'm like, ah, oh! <laughs> it's so hard. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine because you go back and forth through time so much throughout the book. And that was another question I had. Did you like in your writing process, did you write like each timeline out um, and then go back and break it up for the book? Or did you like did it just kind of come as it came? How did that go for you? So I knew from the beginning that there were certain things that I wanted to do to the timeline. So I knew there was one timeline and I knew that that timeline would change because I wanted my characters to have, um, I wanted my characters hard work to pay off. So <laughs> I knew that that was going to happen. And um, I, but along the way, different things happen and there's all these ways that, that the timeline in the book is different from our timeline. And I did, I, I did write out kind of a long description of what it would be like. And then I kind of drew a couple of different timelines and kind of figured out how these characters would be traveling back and forth in time, but not like meeting each other or like, how would they not meet each other? Or what would it mean if they did meet each other? And like, how would they experience, like if they changed the past, what would that mean for their relationships in the present? And like, there's all these, questions that um, are really complicated and so especially when you have one timeline like if you have multiple timelines yay you can do whatever the heck you want but with one timeline um, yeah there was a lot of a lot of notebooks <laughs> full of scribbles I just had in my head like Doc from Back to the Future when he writes that timeline and then he's like oh it goes off this way it goes off but it's like all the same I'm like oh my gosh I was like I wonder if Annalie had like this a whiteboard that you were like just writing timeline stuff on pretty much it was I mean it was in a, in a notebook but yeah and I mean Back to the Future was actually a little bit my model for how to do this because I like um, the way that time travel works in that in that series because they actually do change the timeline and they kind of mess around with things and like it, it's a it's a fun template. Definitely. And so let's talk about the time machines in this book, because it was really interesting to me. You mentioned them earlier, how they find them in rock and geologists study them. And it was really interesting to me that the way that they work, um, both just like scientifically, even though it's like not real, I was really interested, but also the way that they work in your story and like how the characters travel through them. So can you tell us a little bit about that, too, and where that idea came from? So I really wanted to have scientifically accurate time travel because I'm a science journalist and um, talked to a couple of physicists who said, no, that's not possible. Um, so I was like, okay, fine. So time machines are not real, but what we can do is imagine if they were real, how scientists would treat them. And I wanted the time machines to be something that were part, to be things that were part of discovery science, which is like biology or astronomy, where there's stuff out there in the world that exists and we don't understand how it works. And so we're just desperately as scientists and people who are interested in science, trying to figure them out as we go along, like as we use them, like we're trying to figure out our bodies 
and medicine for our bodies, even as we're using our bodies, that kind of thing. So that's what's happening with these time machines. Uh, ancient people discover the first time machine in Jordan um, at a city that is in our timeline called Petra. And people discover it thousands of years ago, just the way, you know, ancient Egyptians and, you know, ancient indigenous people were discovering astronomy, you know, so it's a very early moment in science. And they're kind of like, we don't know what these are. They're probably some kind of spiritual thing. And so people have been using these time machines, thinking of them as magic, and then later thinking of them as science. And people still don't really know how they work. I mean, there's all these scientists who are trying to figure out why do these machines allow us to go through time and they don't even look like machines they just look like pieces of rock and when you pound on the rock in a certain pattern the the rock opens up a wormhole and you can travel through the wormhole and depending on how sophisticated you are with your pounding on the rock whether you're using other rocks to pound it or you're using a sophisticated computer system to pound you can kind of say oh i want to go to this exact point in history um, but you can't go to the future, and there's a bunch of different restrictions on how the machines operate. You know, you can't send multiple people through, and um, only certain kinds of, of people can go through. Not certain kinds of people, but only people who've gone through a long period of training, basically, can go through. And um, I don't want to, like, info dump to you all this stuff about it. But, <laughs> it's but so interesting, though. <laughs> it was really, I mean, to me, it was really fun to come up with it because... I spend so much time talking to scientists about stuff that we don't really understand and that science understands only part of. And that's part of the wonder of science is knowing a little piece of something, but also realizing that there's part of it that we just don't know yet. Like why, why does the universe do a bunch of different stuff that we don't understand? We can guess at it. We can make um, you know, evidence-based guesses. And that's what these characters are doing as they use the time machines, is they're trying to figure out how they work, why they work. One of my favorite parts is that one of the characters who's um, really interested mostly in the mechanism of time travel, they say at one point, you know, I'm starting to think that these aren't actually time machines at all, and they're actually made for something else, but it just happens that we're using them for time travel, and maybe that's actually a misuse or only like a partial use. And... Um, so they really don't, <laughs> they really don't know <laughs> what these devices are and, and whether they're even really devices. Um, and so it's, it's really, that whole part of the book is really just me kind of writing a love letter to discovery science and what it means to be working on scientific questions that have no answer yet um, and may never have an answer in our lifetime. And so they, uh, they are able to do all of the typical timey-wimey stuff that the doctor can do in Doctor Who, but at the same time, they're dealing with a technology that they just don't understand and, don't, and, and can barely describe. So, uh, so there's a, definitely a sense of wonder there <laughs> and definitely a sense of frustration for the scientists, but they're still, they're still trying to change history even though they're not really sure what they're doing. And they're not really sure how history works. It's all true. They're very unsure. And that was one thing that I liked about it is that it was an adult book. Like there are adults in this book who don't exactly know what they're doing. And that was really refreshing to me um, because <laughs> I feel like in all these books, it's the adults like have to know 
what they're doing or else I don't know. So it's it was just cool to see to be like, yeah, these people don't really know what they're doing, but they're going to try their hardest to do what they want to do anyway. And that was cool. <laughs> yeah, that's that's part of for me what's hopeful about the story in the book is that, yeah, nobody really knows what they're doing. But what they do know is that they want to help each other out and they want to make the world better for people who are being marginalized and oppressed. And so they're just kind of fumbling along and, you know, making stuff up. And they manage to, because of the fact that they stick together and they and they help each other, they do manage to make a difference because making a difference isn't about knowing what you're doing. It's really about knowing who's on your side. And that's what they're really good at figuring out. Absolutely. And so even though I could keep talking to you forever about this book, because I have so many more questions, um, we, we are running out of time. So can you tell um, our listeners where they can find you and your work if they want to see or hear more from you? Sure. So you can always find me on Twitter. I'm at Annalie N on Twitter. And my book will be out in late September. And I'll be on book tour from September 24th through October 11th. I'm going to 14 different places and you can find out where I'm going on my tour and find out more about me on my website, which is AnnaLeeNewitz.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for talking to me today. This was wonderful.